On the first day of Christmas my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. Oh, happy Christmas, everybody. Ho, 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 as Santa would say. I'm just waiting on my old friend Niall Hatch to join me before beginning tonight's programme in earnest. Oh, there he is. Niall, come in, come in, come in, come in. I'm in the studio and there are two doors separating the outer studio from the inner studio. Just take that latch off the second door, if you would, Niall. Before you sit down at the table, please take your seat. How was Christmas Day for the Hatch family? <laughs> it was very good, thank you, Derek. A really, really nice day so far. I'm enjoying my Christmas. I've probably eaten a bit too much, I have to say. I bet I'm not the only one listening to the programme right now who's feeling that same way. But it was really good. How about you? You sound like you're in fine voice anyone who's coming in. Oh, yeah, the I love Christmas. singing, especially on the radio. And we have to sing all the way through this programme too, the 12 Days of Christmas, or as we are calling it, the 12 Birds of Christmas. Now, this is your idea. Yes, we were chatting about this last year, Derek, as I recall, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just something that struck me because I remember as a young kid in school, a bird-obsessed young kid, listening to this song, we all learned it in school, yeah. we all know it, and thinking, that's a really bird-heavy song. There's lots of gifts of birds being given for Christmas. Yes, yeah, six individual species were sent to me by my true love, but how many birds in total, Nile? <laughs> well, it turns out you have a very generous true love, Derek, because the song, of course, it's cumulative. So on the first day of Christmas, yeah. my true love sent to me... Um, a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah, so not just a, a partridge, but a pear tree. And actually, I think what struck me first is why would a partridge be in a pear tree? But but more of that later. Then on the second day, you get two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. So it adds up. So now you've got two turtle doves, but you also have two partridges and two pear trees. Mm-hmm. So it cumulatively goes on through those days and it goes on and on like that. So then let's see, by day three, then you have three French hens, mm-hmm. two turtle doves, and a, a partridge, partridge in, in a pear, pear tree. tree. Then the original two turtle doves and that second partridge in a pear tree, and then the original partridge <laughs> so in a pear tree. It's getting very confusing. On on. Day four mm-hmm. of Christmas, you have the four calling birds or four collie birds, as it's sometimes said. What are they? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. What does that mean? But then going on, of course, then you get three more French hens, mm-hmm. two more turtle doves, mm-hmm. and an extra partridge and an extra pear tree. Oh. Then by day five, you get a bit of a respite because it's Ooh. it's the five, five gold rings. Five gold rings. Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, well, okay, maybe a break from the birds, or maybe not. Maybe we'll find more about that later. Then it goes on though again because what then do you get then on the sixth day of Christmas, Derek? Six geese laying. Then the five gold rings and four calling birds and so on and so on. Then we get to seven swans a-swimming. And then, okay, then you're on to your eight maids a-milking, your nine ladies dancing, ten lords a-leaping, eleven pipers piping and twelve drummers drumming. So it actually works out, would you believe, as 184 different individual birds, given all those 12 days of Christmas, and also 12 pear trees. So that's quite a lot of biodiversity that you have. In My your house home. isn't big enough. <laughs> My garden isn't big enough. Where am I going to put them all? Uh, well, well, that's exactly it. I imagine if it was really given, you would have eaten quite a lot of them. I think that's maybe the purpose of some of them would be for food. A lot of these would be game birds or species that would be eaten, even species that we might not think about eating today. And perhaps we'll hear more of that later too. So you said you learned this in school. Is it a carol? Is it a memory game? Is it a ballad? What is it? I think there's an argument to be made that it's all of those things. It depends, I suppose, how you would define a carol. I must admit, I might be an expert on birds, but I'm not an expert on Christmas music. So maybe Mm. I'm not the right person to ask. I think I know the right guy. Leon Litvak in Queen's University in Belfast. My name is Leon Litvak. I'm professor of English at Queen's University and I'm a Victorianist. Oh, Leon, I remember he featured in your programme about the Christmas tree mm-hmm. a couple of years back. He's a real expert on Dickens, I seem to recall. And so Absolutely. Much of, so much of modern Christmas comes from Dickens. But what does he know about carols? Well, he just also happens to be a carol singer. At Christmas time, along with some friends, we go door to door caroling. I and my fellow members of the Choral Connection wish to create 
a happy atmosphere, which to get people into the Christmas season. And that's why we perform this task from year to year in order to raise people's spirits as Christmas approaches. So you can see why Leon is our man, Niall. It seems like he was almost made to do this programme. <laughs> <laughs> Any ideas what I might have asked him? Well, I hope that you asked him whether or not it actually is a carol and where the song first originated. I did. The book I have in my hand is called The Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. And I was quite surprised to find the 12 days of Christmas in that book. And what the commentary on the text tells me is that it started out as a nursery rhyme, as a memory game, and there were various kinds of variations of this in France, for example, and in other countries that lead us to believe that the origins of this particular song are maybe 18th century, maybe older, and come from a variety of traditions in order to try to make the 12 days of Christmas come alive, particularly through the incarnation of birds and indeed of other animals, in order to bring this to life for children, to bring this to life for people who want to try to play games at Christmas. And from that point of view, it's a bit of fun. I don't think that it is actually a carol, but some people believe that it's a carol. So for example, while it appears in this collection of nursery rhymes, it also appears as a broadside ballad from about 1780 in English. It appears in the Oxford Book of Carols and is very often heard in shopping centres and other places. And I think that the reason for that is that there is a kind of secularization of Christmas in our culture. So we hear about white Christmas, we hear other melodies that aren't really to do with religious sentiments, but have to do with snow, have to do with uh, December and what we expect, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere of this. It has to do with these 12 days of Christmas between Christmas Day and Epiphany, which for many was a religious time of year. And people used to count the days and used to associate what happened on those days as a prediction of what will happen in the coming year. So for example, if the 28th of December was a sunny day and it was warm, then there would be an assumption that the relation of that in the calendar going forward would be a propitious time. So there's lots of different variations and lots of interesting intrigue concerning the production of this song and how it has come to be so popular in our culture. Niall, as Leon mentioned there, he is in a choir and they do go door to door singing carols, but I was wondering if the 12 days of Christmas is in their repertoire. Every December I participate in a festival of nine lessons and carols. Occasionally my friends and I would go door to door caroling just as a sign of trying to share the joy and the experience of Christmas. Now I must say that we do not sing the 12 days of Christmas, certainly not in a religious context, because it doesn't have that idea of the nativity of Christ. And I think that if you're particularly if you're trying to create a religious atmosphere in terms of the nine lessons and carols, given that the biblical readings in that service are all to do with the advent of the baby Jesus. This is something that demands, at least in the singing, some idea of religiosity. So whether it's um, Once in David's Royal City, uh, Good King Wenceslas, some of the very, very well-known carols called Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, which also occurs in Dickens's famous work, 
uh, a Christmas carol. So there's an element of religiosity about that service. Now, when you go caroling door to door, I think you can be a little more liberal because all you're trying to do really is just to put people in the mood. But because my friends and I who do this uh, are of a religious temperament and because we do sing in religious services, we tend to make our repertoire much more religious. So that's not to say that we wouldn't sing the 12 days of Christmas because we have some kind of feeling that it's anathema or anything like that. But it's just because we're trying to maintain that religious atmosphere whenever we go door to door and sing these carols for people just to lift their spirits and to give them an idea that this is an important time of the year and also that it's not a secular time of year. So uh, as people say, you know, <laughs> they want to put the Christ back in Christmas. That is, they want to have the religious elements of Christmas come to the fore and the other elements, whether it be the feasting, the present giving, the other elements of Christmas, they really should be put into the background as far as I'm concerned, because there's too much money, there's too much waste that goes into this particular time of year. And people sweat about what they're going to buy their children. People sweat about how they can afford this. Mm -hmm. And I think that they would be much more comfortable with the Christmas season if they didn't think so much about that, but if they thought about days of rest, if they thought about nostalgia of the Christmas season, if they thought about fellowship between human beings, which I think is part of the message of Christmas as well. So it's those things, it's those things that bring us together, those things that make us uh, one human community that are very important. However, that's not to say that the 12 days of Christmas is not popular. And of course, because it contains all of these kind of complex ideas from the 12 to the one, I think that from that point of view, it's fun to sing. Uh, people sometimes forget whether it's uh, six calling birds or whether it's eight lords a leaping and all this kind of thing. So, so I mean, th there are those kinds of uh, memory tests that people perform. But I think that it's, it's very telling in terms of what people associate with Christmas. It's interesting listening to Leon there, Derek, mm -hmm. that he doesn't consider the 12 Days of Christmas a carol himself. Have you ever gone to one of his carol services? No, I haven't, but I have heard them sing and they really are wonderful. sing carols in Advent. So at the moment, uh, we are in the Advent season. And so we are already singing carols and you sing carols indeed into January uh, after Christmas, particularly the, these 12 days of Christmas extending to Epiphany. So, so the Christmas season doesn't necessarily end on the 25th of December. I also asked him about the origins of the tune. So the tune that we associate with the 12 days of Christmas was composed in 1909 by a fellow called Frederick Austin. And it is the, the tune that we all know. On the first day of Christmas, my true love said to me, a partridge in a pear tree, etc. So because of that easygoing, jingly kind of tune, it's very easy to sing. Uh, and I think that that contributes to the currency and the popularity of this particular carol. Some carols are quite difficult to sing, but this particular one, if it's called a carol, but certainly is a Christmas song, is very easy to sing. It's got a repetitive melody, and then it's got, of course, the kind of cejura or hiatus when you go, 
five golden rings and then there's a kind of pause and then it and then the tempo increases when you get to four calling birds three french hens two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree now the partridge in a pear tree is very interesting and it shows how the origins of this particular song lie in france these things circulate through through different cultures. So, for example, in France, there was one called Les Douze Mois, the Twelve Months, and it has in it cockerels, pigeons, oxen, cows, dogs, turtle doves, and a partridge. So you can see how there are some similarities in some of the verses, but there are also differences that speak, I think, to French culture and speak to the origins of this particular song. So ten white pigeons, nine horned oxen, eight biting cows, biting cows? Goodness me, that's a dangerous thing. Seven windmills, six running dogs. So you can see how there is uh, the same kind of mnemonic going from twelve to one, but different terms are used in order to uh, speak to the particular cultural associations in France as opposed to England. So some of these things are interesting in terms of the, the translation across the channel and how these things come to be associated with one culture rather than another, or with both cultures indeed. So it seems it has its origins in France, but a partridge in a pear tree? Partridges don't nest in trees. I thought partridges were ground nesting birds, Not. You're absolutely right, Derek. That's absolutely spot on. And as Leon was saying there, the French origin of the song is the key here. Mm. There's a curious thing in the English language, which you don't find in other languages, whereby we have animals named from Old Saxon or ancient Germanic words, but the foods that are derived from those animals are named after the French word for them. The animal is a cow, but the meat from it is beef from the French, boeuf. We have pigs, but the meat from those animals is pork from the French for pig. And it's actually the same sort of thing that's going on with the partridge here. There is more than one species of partridge in Europe. There's uh, the red-legged partridge, which is very common throughout France and other parts of Europe. It's been introduced into, into Britain as well, where it's now quite a common bird as well. But there's another partridge, the native partridge here in Ireland and in Britain, which is called the grey partridge. Once a very widespread bird in Ireland, now sadly very scarce. There's a big uh, reintroduction project mm. going on in Loch Bora in County Offaly. It's been very successful. And that is, as you said, Derek, that is a bird of open country. It's a bird that has no interest in trees uh, and particularly in pear trees. But actually what was happening in the old song in England, they were trying to specify the species of partridge involved. And that species, the grey partridge, in French, it's called une perdrie, spelled P-E-R-D-R-I-X. Ah. And then when you sing in French, a lot of the vowels at the end of words that are normally silenced when it's spoken are sung. So you instead of saying une perdrie, you would sing une perdrie. And what happened, une perdrie sounded like nonsense and became in a pear tree. So a partridge in a pear tree really means a partridge in a pear tree, a partridge, a grey partridge, as opposed to a red-legged partridge, which we'll hear later is perhaps what was also known as the French hen. So there's more than one partridge in this song. Oh my goodness. It's confusing, yes. <laughs> so do partridges ever perch in trees? Partridges really prefer to be on the ground. They will perch sometimes on low vegetation. Pear trees, though, wouldn't offer a very secure footing for a partridge. There's nothing that would attract them there. They don't want to eat the pear fruit, uh, and it wouldn't be a particular species that would be native to the area anyway, so it's not something they would have encountered. They very much are birds of open habitat, and in fact, too much trees and too much vegetation cover will push them out. It's one of the reasons why they've declined so much in parts of Europe. Mm. So that was the first day on which my true love brought to me a partridge in a pear tree. 
Une perdrie. Oh, pardon. <laughs> now, what about the second day, the two turtle doves? I know that Eric Dempsey is a big fan of turtle doves. Why not him? Collar doves are the ones that we get in our garden at the moment, and they, they're just these lovely, oh, they're gentle, pale, grey, pinkish sort of birds with that black little line on their neck, the collar doves. And they're the ones that we have uh, coming into most people's gardens. And in the farmlands, we have birds called stock doves. Mm. And of course, we have wood pigeons. Mm-hmm. They're the big ones, you know, with a the, with the white collar on the neck and the big flash of white. Take They're two, enormous. John, take two. Take two. And the collar dove is united, united. That's right. But I don't know what the stock dove says. The stock dove is sort of a and then of course we have uh, rock doves and rock doves are the the wild feral doves that we had the feral pigeons that we have in our streets the gitnas as they would say in dublin these are all members of the pigeon dove family and doves basically are slightly smaller group within the pigeon family and and some of the doves that we get across the world are beautiful we have doves that you find in in the tropics absolutely gorgeous but the collar dove is the one that most people would be familiar with. They have that dark eye that gives them that lovely, gentle sort of look. So, yes, doves are a beautiful addition to our gardens. Now, Niall, when you suggested that we get Eric to cover the two turtle doves, I thought, great idea. But this guy knows his birds. How many books has he written? Do you have any idea? Oh, it's certainly loads, Derek. There's, let's see, there's Finding Birds in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is The Complete Field Guide to Irish Birds. Mm-hmm. The Pocket Guide to Common Birds of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Prolific author. He certainly is. Anyway, so I decided I better do my research. But it turned out I needn't have bothered. Because when I got to his home in Wicklow, he interviewed himself. It was the second day of Christmas that my true love brought to me two turtle doves. But here's the thing. Why turtle doves? Why, why did he bring her turtle doves? Because turtle doves are a migratory species. At Christmas time, they wouldn't be found in Europe. They're off in tropical Africa. They're the only dove of <laughs> Europe that flies south in winter. So when I was very young, I used to ask myself, like, why turtle doves? Why not, say, collared doves instead of turtle doves? Of course, collared doves are an Asian species which only colonised Europe in the 20th century. So when that carol was written, if it is a carol, indeed, not just a memory game, but when that carol was written, collared doves weren't known to be in Europe. Right. So... I got to think, well, why didn't he give his true love a pair of wood pigeons? It's not really romantic, really, is it? Wood pigeons. Well, you know. <laughs> or what about stock doves? Well, they look a bit like wood pigeons. They're not exactly beautiful looking things. They're gorgeous in their own right. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't give old rock doves, like, you know, your street pigeon as a, as a romantic gift. Well, people do eat pigeons. Oh, they do. But you wouldn't give, like, two street pigeons. Okay. You know, to your true love. So it had to be something exotic, something colourful, something beautiful. And turtle doves, obviously, was the answer. Let me describe turtle doves for you. Please. Please, because they're beautiful. You you know the shape and size of collar doves that we get in our gardens? Well, they are a smaller version of those. They have a lovely, small, gentle head, a dark red eye with a red eye ring around them. They have a lovely pinkish breast. And their upper parts are beautiful. They have black centres to their feathers with beautiful rufous edges on each feather 
on their back and some parts of their wing. They have a lovely white edge to their tails. They are a beautiful bird. In fact, their Latin name is Strepopolia turtur. Strepopolia comes from the Greek strepos, which means a colour. Mm-hmm. And pelia is origins of Greek, meaning a dove. But turtur refers to the sound they make, their song, which is a purring tr 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 And that is where turtle doves get their name. It's not the pattern on their back that mm. looked like a turtle shell. It's the actual song that gives the birds their name. Their old name would have been Turtur Dove. Turtur Dove then derives into Turtle Dove. So, in conclusion, Derek, the Turtle Doves that he gave to his true love would have been captive or captive-bred birds in a cage. They would not have been wild Turtle Doves because they would have been in central tropical Africa. They wouldn't have been in Europe. So he gave two beautiful, calling, lovey-dovey doves, beautiful colours, beautiful patterns. Only them could be a perfect gift to give to your true love on the second day of Christmas. See what I mean? I didn't have to ask him a single question. (laughs) (laughs) You have yet of a job, Derek. Uh, No, obviously perfect to talk to about turtle doves. The man Mm. knows his stuff. And if you heard the expression lovey-dovey, as he used there, that comes from the turtle dove. For centuries, it's been a symbol of love. Because since ancient Roman times, it was widely believed, and sort of true, that turtle doves are monogamous, that they mate for life. And so they were very much a symbol of love. And the pair seem very devoted to each other. They're always side by side. They're preening each other, cooing or purring more appropriately or more accurately to each other and that's where the expression lovey-dovey comes from so a perfect gift to give to your true love to show your affections Well you know who I always get lovey-dovey with on this programme every Monday night don't you? Aina Nilauna Aina Nilauna I really do love her I lovey-dovey her but I'm not sure the feeling is mutual Come in, come in, come in, come in come in. I'm just in here setting the table I have four people coming for dinner tonight and you're not one of them (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, Derek, I get where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. Setting the dinner table. Is it three French hens by any chance? Exactly. Yeah, the first day was the partridge and the second day was the two turtle doves and the third day was the hen. Mm. My true love sent to me three French hens. Well, why were they French hens? What was wrong with the common old local job? And the thing was that the French hens, when this carol was written way back in the 1700s, there was a change in breeding at that time and they were able to make hens that had, you know, were finer looking species, altogether better feathers, more meat on them, they laid more eggs. And of course, they were very good at that kind of carry on in France. And there were different species of French hens that were far superior to ones you would get in Britain and Ireland. So if my true love was making me a wonderful gift, well, then I was to get a French hen. And in fact, to this day, if you go to France, they have, they're very proud of their chickens there. You have Poulet de Bresse and you have Poulet Rouge and there's different ones that you can actually get, which are 
reared to certain high standards and different species and they're priding themselves on that but the rearing of them and the breeding of them goes back to the 1700s so my tulip was on the ball he wasn't sending me a common old garden old hen down the road he was sending me three French hens which he must have had to import a lot of them would have feathers down to their ankles some of them would have laid maybe turquoise coloured eggs they wouldn't be just the ordinary white or brown there was different um, colours of eggs that they laid I would have been very delighted to get three French hens and I probably wouldn't have eaten them I'd have kept them and shown them off and had one up on the neighbours that I had three French hens Yeah but now that goes back to the origins of the actual carol or rhyme or memory game or whatever it was so you're thinking of it in this context of living here in Ireland but maybe it was written in France so what else would he be giving them only three French hens? Well this is the thing but there's a thought that if it was written in France the French hens were actually the red-legged partridge not a hen at all. So if we were in France getting, I mean, what else would you get me three French hens? But if you were in France getting this, the red-legged partridge is a native to the south of France. Now we have the partridge in the pear tree that was a grey partridge, but the red-legged partridge was a fine bird to eat as well. It's more of the, the dinner for the table. And it lived in the south of France, native to there. Now it has been introduced to, to Britain and to Ireland and it can occur and can live here indeed. But it was native to the south of France. And that was, if you were in France receiving the French hen, you were getting a red-legged partridge, three of them. Oh, I'm very confused now because on the first day of Christmas, my true love brought to me a partridge in a pear tree, then two turtle doves, and then three French hens. But according to Aileen Nilana, the French hens are actually partridges. What's going on? There's lots of birds, all right. It is very partridge heavy, especially when you consider <laughs> that this is cumulative. So on the third day, it wasn't just three French hens. Oh, what have I got now? An extra two turtle doves and an extra partridge in a pear tree. So couple those with the birds you had on day one and then on day two, you're up to ten birds. Now. Oh, thank God you're here. I was never any good at maths, but I know someone who is. Former biology teacher Terry Flanagan? That's the man. Are you all right there, Terry? <laughs> Terry, I'm not the best after all those steps. You're not I'm, as fit as you used to no, be. No, well, I'm 56 now anyway. Why have you brought me to the Papal Cross? Just look out there. You're looking out here across the city of Dublin down there to the south and you look out to the west. You look up to the north behind me. Isn't that a beautiful view? It is, yeah. But do you know if you were here 50 years ago, uh-huh. it wouldn't be as nice Why? because of all the pollution. You don't remember that, you're too young for that. But years and years ago, we were able to burn all these coal substances in the house. And the place was filthy, dirty places like the four courts and the GPO and the covered and such. Mm, unfortunately, I am old enough to remember the smog in Dublin. Because of all that coal, absolutely. Mm. And of course, that somehow leads us on to the fourth day of Christmas and the gift. The four coaling birds or collie birds or what is it? Something to do with coal, maybe? We're about to find out. <laughs> I suppose you're wondering why I made you walk up all of those steps to the base of the Papal Cross here in the Phoenix Park. Yes, I am. And what a smog-filled city has to do with the fourth day of Christmas. I am. <laughs> well, remember the song. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. What's the next line? Four calling birds. Four calling birds? Yeah, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Four calling birds. Yes, but is it not for collie birds? Well, you see, I think the original song was for collie birds and not for calling birds. In fact, in the literature, the first time you see mention of for calling birds is in 1909. Oh. 
But the four Collie birds were there from long before that. And Collie, which is spelled C-O-L-L-I-E or C-O-L-L-Y, refers to the colour of the bird and not what the bird was doing. I see. So the Collie birds were blackbirds. So the four Collie birds are four calling birds. It doesn't really matter which one you say, but I think the original one was Collie birds. And if we think in Irish too, Derek, the Irish for blackbird is? Lundov or Kershock, depending on whether it's the male or the female. Very good, because I thought you were only going to get the first one. And when you think of our blackbird, it's that real sooty black. Black as coal is what it is, with that lovely ring, that yellow ring on the eye and the yellow beak. Whereas the Kershock, in olden times, they thought it was a different species altogether. That's why they gave it a different name. It's what we refer to in biology or in science as sexual dimorphism, whereby the two members of the species, the male and the female, look totally different. Probably the best example people can think of would be either a peacock or a pheasant, mm. where the male is that nice bright colour and the female is that duller colour. And the reason why she's the duller colour is because when she's sitting on eggs, particularly if she's on the ground like a, like a pheasant, that she's well camouflaged so that she can't be seen, whereas the male could easily be seen. So when we think of the four collie birds, think of them as being like coal or like soot. They're as black as black can be. And that's the way the city used to be, that smog-filled city. Thankfully, the city is no longer like that, but our, our blackbirds are. And when you look at that blackbird, it's fantastic. People think of the carol as the four birds singing or calling, but it's not. It's their colour, that very, very distinctive black colour of the bird. Well, I never. Who'd have thought it? Well, it appears Terry Flanagan did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. So there we have our four collie birds, four birds the Mm -hmm. colour of coal. So call pertaining to coal. Think of colliery, the same same root word. Uh, So the blackbirds, um, interesting choice of gift. Why would you give them as a gift? Well, some people might think it's because of a beautiful song, but if you have four male blackbirds together, they're just going to kill each other, not sing. Mm. I think it's for culinary purposes. I think that many of these presents are to do with food. And we know if you look at the, the nursery rhyme about the four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, these birds were widely eaten, still are in many parts of Europe. They're hunted quite a bit in the Mediterranean region. Thankfully, that's illegal in Ireland. You can't hunt blackbirds here, but they are considered a delicacy. Well, which leads us nicely on to our next bird, because we've got to skip something now, now because it's a partridge in a pear tree, two turtle doves, three French hens, four collie or calling birds and then five gold rings. Yes, so um, you could stretch the metaphor a bit by saying maybe they're the rings that ornithologists would put on birds' legs to track them when they do these ringing studies, although making them from gold, that would be a rather expensive and heavy way to do it. Uh, and of course, when this song first arose, people didn't do that. Um, so um, it seems like five gold rings, maybe just a straightforward gift. Or maybe not. We might have some insights into that later on. But let's skip the fifth day for the moment. Okay, so we're on to the geese a-laying. Yes, the six geese a-laying. So I think we need somebody maybe with some culinary interest or experience there because geese are very much associated still with Christmas Day and with uh, with food on Christmas Day. Do you know anyone who's maybe hosting a dinner party? Oh yeah, and it's time for a bit of payback. Aina Nilana. Don't talk to me about the goose. I got this nice goose. I was going to do the devil and all. And I had this really swanky cooker that cleaned itself. You know, the ones they can have a pyro clean on. And goose, gooses are the fattiest things. And I had it in the oven all heated up hot and all the grease came out of it, spattered itself all over the oven. I didn't care because I had the pyro clean. And we took out the goose and drained off the fat eventually. And 
Jeepers, the boost was eight or nine pounds. Because four of us barely had enough to eat, and it. it's all bones and things like that. Now it tastes very nice. It's dark meat, and I like dark meat. So anyway, I turned on the pyro, cleaned, cleaned the oven afterwards, and there was so much grease, and the thing heated up that the door welded shut. It went well beyond the five hundred degrees, and the oven was ruined. It was the dear goose. I'm telling you, I don't be having that anymore. <laughs> Well, I, I'm glad I stuck with the turkey so, Derek. That doesn't sound great. No. Um, so, poor Aina. But did she actually tell you why the geese appear in the song? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she did. Yeah, well, the goose is cooked. Well, I presume you heard that expression, your goose. I did, of course, yeah. And that means if her goose is cooked, it doesn't mean that the bird in the oven is at a nice doneness. It means that game is up with you. Everybody's found out about you. Your goose is cooked. You're in trouble now. That's what you are. Actually, geese geese were terrible things. When I was young, me and Finn McCool, way back in the 1950s, we used to go on our holidays to Clogher Head and we'd go from Clogher across to Almondstown to get the milk and we had to walk around the road and there was a flock of geese that were there. There was a gander and there was a flock of geese and we were only little and we had to walk past this flock of geese and we were terrified of the gander. Our goose was nearly cooked. We'd have to run after them. We'd be saying, you go first and they'll run after you and we can escape. So geese, geese were awful things in the olden days and they were kept, of course, for, for people to eat. I mean, because, you know, the geese were what they ate when they'd eaten all the boars. Boars is what they usually had for a Christmas feast way back in the 1400s, a great big feast. They obviously had more than four coming to dinner. And then when the boars were all killed out, the geese was what they had. So geese, the end of the geese really in the 1950s, people would have geese still. The turkeys were only coming in. There were bronze turkeys. There weren't ones with, with the white turkeys with the big breast. They, they only came in subsequently. But um, we were afraid of the geese, I'll tell you that much. What geese were they, do you know? The, the geese that my tool have sent to me. Mm. Well, I mean, who knows? I think that whole thing is a glorified shopping list and he's only doing is sending them the true love stuff for her dinner because all of the different birds are edible ones. But the geese were laying. So if you were getting a goose a laying, it was a very special treat because not only were you getting a nice fat goose, but the geese, six of them, were laying eggs as well. So I'm telling you, that was some trick. That was some gift to be given, all right. And, and the wild geese we have were, of course, the, the grey-like geese, the ones that have all grey bodies, the, the white-fronted geese, which are kind of the same, but really you know, they're different species and they have a white front, not their chest, as you might think, but they're white forehead. And we have the brent geese. These all come to us from the high Arctic, in fact. And, of course, the famous barnacle goose, which wasn't a goose at all, it was a fish. You could eat that on Friday because the barnacle geese... Never had eggs here, never laid here. They, they didn't breed in Ireland. And then they came back over to sea every year with young. And it was generally known as the priest's goose, if you wouldn't be minding. But they were all the wild geese. They must have been as tough as old boots if they'd flown all the way here from Arctic Canada. And they didn't breed here. So why on earth would they be laying eggs the sixth day of Christmas? So if you got six geese laying, there must have been farmyard geese on steroids. So yeah, a lot of geese there, a lot of potential mm. candidates. But <laughs> given that these were geese a-laying, as Aina said, they're not going to have been these nope. migratory geese. They would have been domestic geese, which means that at that time they would almost certainly have been domesticated greylag geese. That is the wild species that is the ancestor of our domestic geese today. There's another goose called the swan goose, which was domesticated in Asia. You get those in Ireland now as well. Uh, but it would have been the greylag geese. Now, actually, even with that, it would have been unusual on the 30th of December, which is the sixth day of Christmas, 
would be very unusual then for geese actually to be laying because most domestic geese don't lay eggs until usually around February and they're a shorter season than chickens do uh, because they, they're still more like their wild ancestors. So I do find it a little bit dubious perhaps that there were geese laying at that time on Christmas uh, but who knows maybe it was a different breed I'm not sure but certainly that were in the grey like goose. Does anything lay eggs at that time of year? Well certain birds do of course many in the southern hemisphere yeah, the but tropics not this do. part of the world. Not in this part of the world no. Uh, we do have some early nesters so you will get birds like ravens they nest in the winter so you uh, get them nesting in February. Mostly, Fe- February yeah. Yeah, around that kind of time. The ring-necked parakeets also called the rose-ringed mm-hmm. parakeets we've talked before an invasive species that seems to be spreading now in Ireland they do nest sometimes in January so possibly by the 30th of December ah, they come on they're not geese no they're not geese you're not going to get geese doing it no so I think that's um, it, it, it's strange I wonder if it's one of those things that's been lost in translation um, I, I'm interested to hear Aina talk there as well about uh, the barnacle geese and how they were considered to be fish or they were adult of goose barnacles um, people often look at that and think well people must have been really stupid back then I don't think that's what it was at all I think that people knew exactly what was going on it was just a, 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 a I suppose a, an easy way just to try and circumvent yeah, the regulations opting out wasn't it, it? opting out they so knew you what they could were actually eat meat not just fish yeah. on Friday that's, that's what it, it was all about and they knew this they knew this well so it was, it was a cheat <laughs> <laughs> um, now geese um, they're big birds but um, well, even bigger birds related to them would be the swan um, I wonder one of those would do to Aina's oven. <laughs> I don't know, but there's only one man we can ask about swans. Swan expert, Dr. Richard Collins. You know, I can't even remember the first time I met Richard. The first time I met you, Derek, was on an expedition out to the Broadmeadow Estuary to catch swans and ring them. Do you remember that? I do remember it. I remember what happened too when you ringed the swan. Well, when you caught it, should I say? Yes. What did I put was so terrible when I caught it? Well, it exploded all over me. Indeed, <laughs> rubbish. They produce about a kilo of one mushy pea soupy poo, and <laughs> which they empty. They empty the ball immediately. That's about fight or flight. You you have to be as light as possible if you're going to fight or if you're going to flee. So the swan says, my God, I'm after being caught by this monster. I better empty the bowel. And that's what they do. But you get used to it. It gets used to it. It won't do you any harm. (laughs) Won't do you any harm. Won't do you any harm. (laughs) Spoken like a true ornithologist. Mm. I have to say, it doesn't sound like a very romantic gift to give someone for the seventh day of Christmas. Seven swans are swimming or seven swans are something else, maybe? Look on the left there, Derek. A pair of swans is coming over to say hello to us. And that one on the left with the big berry, the black knob over the bill, that is the daddy one. And, of course, the other is the wife. Now, they're very monogamous swans. They're always together. Now, they're coming over expecting a handout from us. And usually they would be rewarded. But unfortunately, Derek, we forgot to bring a bit of bread for them, a bribe. But, however, they are lucky swans in a way. Because if you went back a few centuries, swans were eaten. This famous 12 Days of Christmas carol, I believe that to be about cooking swans. That's what that is about, really. Because a swan was the Christmas bird. In, I think it was the 13th century, Henry II, there's a record of him eating, or of his court eating, 125 swans at Christmas. And there's one of 200 years later, uh, the installation of the Archbishop of York. 400 swans were cooked and eaten then. The swan was a very important thing. Now, what did they do? 
late in the autumn. You see, the swans, when they have their babies, they go into a flightless period. They're growing new flight feathers. They're vulnerable. So you could go out and catch the swans at that stage. You could go out and what they did was they pinioned them. The pinion was to remove a bone from one of the wings so that they could never fly. Now you had the swans and the cygnets unable to fly, roaming around the rivers and lakes and ponds of England, because this is where all that happened. Coming up to this time of year, they went out and captured the cygnets. They brought them in and they put them into what were called swan pits. They created a kind of thing like modern swimming pool and they put the swans into that. The cygnets were put into that and they were fattened up for the Christmas dinner, you see. Now you couldn't eat the big white adults. Remember John Rutty who wrote an essay towards the natural history of the county of Dublin, published 1772. He says, the tame swan, he says, is most succulent, but it's hard of digestion except when very young. You could, <laughs> o- you could only eat a cygnet. In fact, the word signet comes from the French meaning of a swan young enough to eat. So all the poor old signets were dropped. Now, what did they do next? Now, that's the interesting thing. Cooks, an army of staff in a big house in, 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 in England, a monarch or whatever, you took the guts out of the swan, you emptied the body cavity, and then you put into the body cavity a duck, maybe, or a, a chicken. I doubt if you get a goose in there, but you get those in. And then you took the innards out of the duck, or the goo, or the chicken, and you put what? A partridge. And that's where the tune reminds you of this, the partridge in the pear tree. The partridge was put in then. So now you had a multi-layered, you had three fowl in one, and of course lots of herbs and spicy things and whatever. You have to ask the cooks about that side of it. And then you put it into an oven, and you needed a big oven, and it had to be cooked for hours. And that's how the swans were cooked. But when did the turkey take over? Now, that's a very interesting one. The great saviour of the cygnets was, of course, the turkey. Now, in 1497, a fellow called Strickland, William Strickland, a Yorkshireman, brought the first known turkeys into Bristol from North America. Now, the turkey was a much more practical proposition than a swan. You didn't have to dig a big pit uh, with water in it. You didn't have to have huge staff to fatten up the signals. You didn't have to do any of that with a turkey. You could keep, keep a turkey the same as you kept hens. So this thing gradually took over in James I of Ulster Plantation fame. He started the tradition of eating turkey at Christmas time. This gradually took over and as this took over, much more practical than swan, the swans got uh, a reprieve. They were then left alone because they were too difficult to deal with. They were tough characters anyway. But the turkey then took over and the turkey becomes the Christmas dinner. But in this carol, the turkey isn't mentioned at all. And because it dates from the days when the swan was the piece de resistance on Christmas Day. Is that a train I hear in the background there, Derek? Yeah, we were just in Fairview Park alongside the River Tolka, just underneath the bridge that takes the dart out to Hoth and then on out to Malahide. A great place to see swans. It is an ideal place and they're quite used to people, um, as I heard there. They're actually coming over <laughs> yeah, when they, they saw you. Towards, yeah. um, just thinking of those as Christmas dinner, can you imagine the leftovers? I thought the turkey was bad. <laughs> Swan sandwiches for days. Anyway, so that's the end of our birds, Nod. So how many have we got now at this stage? Well, 
bearing in mind we're doing it cumulatively. Yeah. And um, if you add them up from each day and they're giving the same gift again each day, it's up to 69 birds. 69 birds? Imagine the mess. Imagine the feathers. Imagine the <laughs> droppings. <laughs> a kilo each in the case of those swans, apparently. Well, now, this programme is called The Twelve Birds of Christmas. Where do we go to next? Well, the thing is, this is where the song gets a bit weird mm. because the gifts, they stop being around birds and, and gold rings and become gifts of people, which is oh, yeah. kind of strange. Um, I really find it very hard to believe that people were genuinely giving things like eight maids a milking, nine ladies dancing and all the rest. Ten lords a-leaping, eleven pipers piping and... Twelve drummers drumming. Yes, and, and if you think about it, that would be a deeply weird Christmas <laughs> well, list to know. give to your, to, your, to your true love. Um, so there are some theories that there's metaphors going on here, or perhaps one of the theories is that, in fact, all of these are birds as well. It would be pretty strange to start off giving loads of birds and then to switch to something else. If only somebody had written a book about this. Well, you're in luck because it just so happens that the noted ornithologist and TV producer and author Stephen Moss has written a book called The Twelve Birds of Christmas. Have you spoken with him? I have indeed. Yeah, it's a pretty chilly day here. I've just cycled off to the doctors for a quick blood test, which um, makes me feel very healthy. I try to cycle every morning. Saw a stone chat on the way back, which is a little winter bird that doesn't usually hang around our area too much. It was nice to see that. Big flocks of field fares and red wings and starlings, of course, in the fields nearby. <laughs> I should have mentioned, Derek, I was speaking to Stephen at his home in Somerset and yeah. just returned from having a blood test. But anyway. As you do. Absolutely. Um, anyway, I was keen to know more about this and specifically I wanted to know why he chose to write this book in the first place. Well, to be honest, it started with a joke from my agent who said that one of her colleagues had said, why don't you write a book on the turkey before Christmas? And then said, or of course you could do the 12 birds of Christmas. And I said, hang on, that's interesting. Let me have a look at the song. Because like you, I was aware that there are a lot of birds in it, but obviously quite a few of the verses don't appear to be birds. And when I looked more closely at it, I developed this theory, which I explain in the book, that possibly they all are birds. That was a real eye-opener for me because um, when you're talking about the lords leaping and the drummers drumming and all of that, it's not necessarily clear that, that might be birds. But I, I like your theory, for example, the drummers drumming, it could be woodpeckers. Well, the way I looked at it was I first started looking at some of the verses that don't appear to be birds. And one of them was five gold rings, the bit we always sing. Five gold rings. And I thought about it. I thought, why would you give anyone five rings? You know, you give your loved one one ring, not five. And then I was actually researching a book on bird names, Mrs. Moreau's Warbler, how birds got their names. And I discovered that an old, mostly Scottish and Northern English name for the Yellowhammer was Yoldring. And I thought, that's a corruption, rather like calling birds. When people sing for calling birds, it's actually collie birds, which means blackbirds. So I realised that the gold rings was actually gold rings, and then I decided to think of an appropriate bird for the others. There's no absolutely hard and fast evidence that they're all birds, but it just occurred to me that if five or six of the verses are birds, why wouldn't the others be? Do you think that the song, is it is it a metaphor or would it have been normal for people to give presents like this to, to their true loves? I think it's a metaphor. There are various theories which I explain in the book. One is that it's actually about the Catholic catechism in the days, of course, in, in Tudor England where at times it was extremely dangerous to be a Roman Catholic, that it was done as a way of sort of remembering 
those things. Again, we don't have any evidence either way. This this song has been around for a very long time, hundreds of years and possibly longer even than that as an oral song that would have been sung. And so I had a bit of fun with it, really, because I wanted to write about certain birds at Christmas, including, of course, turtle doves, French hens and the famous partridge in the pear tree. So I decided to write the book so that all 12 chapters could be birds. When it came to something like, let's say, the maids are milking, what's the story there? Well, that was the most difficult one of the lot because with things like ladies dancing, I thought about cranes, uh, lords are leaping, black grouse, which lek, the males lek and leap about. With that, it was a tricky one. Someone said, well, you should do blue tits because they used to, when I was a kid, they used to um, raid milk bottles on doorsteps when we used to have doorstep deliveries. But I decided to do the nightjar because that's known as the goat sucker um, and milkmaids would have been very aware of the nightjar because the bird would have come in to areas with cattle and goats being milked. And the theory was that they were sucking the milk out of the goats themselves, out of their teats. In fact, of course they weren't. They were finding moths and flies attracted by the animals, by livestock tends to have a lot of insects around them. And so I wrote about the nightjar, an incredible nocturnal bird. Yes, yeah, a species that uh, breeds here in tiny numbers in Ireland and it's, it's yeah, at the very, very edge of its range here. It's very little habitat for it here, but a bird I think that a lot of people listening to the programme might not have heard of before. It would be nice to think if it was genuinely the inspiration in this in this song, but even if it wasn't, it's great that you're shining a light on this, this, this little known bird species. Speaking of which, what's the story with the French hens? Because there's more to that than meets the eye or meets the ear, I think. That's right. Well, the French hens, I talk about the history of the chicken because French hens are legendarily known for being extremely tasty. The, the, you know, the poulet, as they're known in French, of course, and they would have been imported into Britain and they would have been really only eaten by the upper classes. Although, as my aunt pointed out, when she was growing up in the 1930s and 40s, you had chicken at Easter. That, that was, you know, chicken was such a luxury meat that you did not have it all year round as we do now. So I used that again as a springboard to write about the sort of history of the the chicken in general. And it's an area I'm fascinated by now. Most of my recent books, uh, all of them actually, deal with the cultural history, the social history of our relationship with birds, the connections between humanity and, and, and birds over time and through all sorts of serious and popular culture. I think that's a really important aspect of this because often we look at bird species, it's almost like divorced from any kind of human context. But the fact is that the birds that we think of as our garden birds, for example, or, or birds like chickens that have been domesticated for so long, we human beings are an intrinsic part of their history and their, and, and their biology at this stage. That's right. We're an intrinsic part of their biology and they're an intrinsic part of our lives. And I've, I've written now five what I call bird biographies and that, that word was used deliberately in a very anthropomorphic way, if you like, to say, let's look at these birds. Let's, of course, look at their behaviour and their biology and their ecology and all those fascinating scientific aspects of their lives. But then let's look a bit about our relationship with them in literature and music and popular culture and all those things. And I started off with the robin and then did the wren, the swallow, the swan and now the owl. And the fascinating thing I found, which, which I, I only realised about halfway through the robin book, was that our cultural relationship with these birds, the stories we tell about them, the myths, the mythology, the little anecdotes, if you like, are always connected with that bird's biology. So with something like the robin, its connection with Christmas is to do with the fact that 
robins feed on the ground and during cold winter weather that we used to get in Britain and in Ireland, in winter it would snow and the birds were starving so they'd come to people's back doors and sort of beg for food and they'd fluff themselves up and look cute and pretty and so they were connected with Christmas through that and I love that connection, the fact that that our, our folklore about birds is not in any way divorced from their behaviour. In fact, it is, in my view, entirely related to that behaviour. I think it's actually a stroke of genius that you refer to these books as biographies. It's a far more inviting term to the general public, I would say, than monograph, which is you often see with these things. So I think that it's really nice. When you, you, you know what this book is going to do. We're used to biographies where you're actually setting out the, the life story of this species. I think that's a really clever idea. Well, thank you. I, 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 it sort of came out of the blue. And then when I did it, I thought, oh, is that right? Maybe I shouldn't have called them that. But actually, I, I can tell how it works because they sell a lot of copies. I've sold over 100,000 of the first four volumes plus The Twelve Birds of Christmas, which is in the same series, really. Most of my reviews say things like, I bought this for my mum because she loves robins, or I bought this for my dad because he's always loved wrens. And that, for me, is so lovely in that people buy a book for someone who they know has a connection with that bird because so many of us have a favourite bird and the robin and the wren and the swallow and the swan and indeed the owl now are always in the sort of top 10 of people's favourite birds. You mentioned there, Stephen, about how you like your, your books to be read by people. Can I ask you, with The Twelve Birds of Christmas, has that ever been sung by anybody? Has it been put to music, your version of the carol? I don't think it has yet, but that's a lovely idea, isn't it? I must get in touch with a choir somewhere. I I could persuade my wife's choir in the local church down the road. They do a carol service. Maybe I could see if they can do it. That would be really nice. An interesting man, Stephen Moss, I have to say, Niall. Yes, and a great writer as well, and a very talented person indeed, and he knows his birds. I have to say it was really fascinating talking to him, and I'm certainly convinced by his explanation for the five gold rings, the uh-huh. yellow rings. I do think he's right. I think that is the yellow hammer, the corruption of that. So you've got to give me six birds now. You mentioned some of them to add to the partridge in a pear tree, the two turtle doves, the three French hens, the four calling birds, six geese a laying and the seven swans a swimming. Well, so as you heard there from Stephen, the eight maids a milking, he's postulating that could be the nightjar, the goat sucker, the bird that would be seen swooping around at dawn and dusk around the pastures. Possibly so. That'd be an extremely weird present to give someone, but I like I like the way he's thinking there. Then we have the nine ladies dancing, which would be the cranes. And now that's a bird that has a long tradition here in Ireland. It would also have been a bird that would have been eaten at Christmas, a very large bird, even bigger again than a swan. Yeah. And so there'll be a lot of meat on one of those as well. And they've started to breed again here? They have indeed, yes. And it was a bird that was widely domesticated, strange as that may seem. So from that point of view, I think that would be something that people may actually have given Mm -hmm. at Christmas. And it would be a very uh, prestigious gift, I would think. Then the Lord's a-leaping, he just referred to them there in passing, that were the black grouse. That's a species we don't have in Ireland. We have the red grouse. They're related. But they do this amazing breeding display at the Lek, um, which is a communal group. It's a a Norse word for for a group of these birds where they get the males gathered together to try and impress the females. And it's kind of winter takes all that he'll mate with all the females and they do this by dancing they jump up and down from the ground the Lord's leaping and that again would be a very prestigious well 
regarded foodstuff back then, a real luxury bird to have around Christmas time. Uh, then we had the one that Stephen and I didn't actually speak about, but his, his explanation for the 11 pipers piping also makes a good bit of sense to me. He's talking that would be sandpipers. Ah. Now, there are many different species of sandpiper found in Britain and Ireland and France, um, all over the place, especially in the wintertime. It's hard to know exactly which species it would have been. In fact, the people then may not have made distinctions in the same way that we do today. They could have been talking about snipe, for example, or perhaps godwits. Um, it could have been a collection of all different types of sandpiper, those long-necked, long-beaked, long-legged wading birds uh, that apparently are pretty good to eat and quite a few of them are still hunted. So that does make sense as well. And then finally, we just referred to it briefly, the 12 drummers drumming. He's suggesting that that could be woodpeckers. And we do know that woodpeckers were traded because of their feathers, not so much for their meat. I wouldn't imagine they're very good to eat, but their feathers can be really beautiful. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they might have been given as gifts. Uh, so, and of course, now in Ireland, we have the great spotted woodpecker. So when this song was first being sung, or even when I was learning it in school, um, that species was not one you'd find in Ireland. But now the great spotted woodpecker is on the rise in Ireland. So it's now the 12 birds of Christmas officially. So how many gifts will my true love give to me if they're all birds, Niall? So if we take that all of those are birds, we follow Stephen's thesis there, or theory behind this, then that would add up to a strange number, 364 birds given at Christmas, plus, let's not forget, oh, yeah? 12 pear trees on top of that well. As well, it's a well-known fact that each pear tree equates to two hours. That's right, so that would, that would add up to 365 <laughs> days. There we go. <laughs> yippee, yippee, yippee. Oh, the only sad thing is we've nobody to sing it. Oh, not yet, anyway. I think that'll be our next project for next year. What do you think? I, I think I think that'd be wonderful. I think a lot of people would be interested in that. Maybe we could do it for charity. But in the meantime, what are we going to do? Well, if only we had maybe somebody associated with the programme had a number one hit record in Ireland. Who was that? Ain't any again. She'd hardly sing, would she? You could ask her. I did. Do you really want me to sing it? Do you want to lose the last few listeners we actually have, Derek? <laughs> well, did she sing it or not? Yes, she did. <laughs> well, on your own head, be it. On the first day of Christmas my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me six geese a-laying five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. That's it, I'm not singing anymore. And anyway, there's no more birds left, so there. <laughs> well, what can I say? Only thank you very much indeed. 
Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins, Leon Litvak, Eric Dempsey, Stephen Moss, Michelle Brown, our researcher, and not forgetting the man I couldn't have done it without, Niall Hatch. Happy Christmas, Niall. A very happy Christmas to you too, Derek. And happy Christmas to you at home. We'll be here again tomorrow at 7pm with a special programme about the Wren. Until then, ho, ho, ho! (laughs) 